Turn to Psalm chapter 6 as we continue our study of the book of Psalms. This is a song of repentance in Psalm 6. And um, we want to read it together. There's ten verses. There's four stanzas, but there's two sections. Verses 1 through 7, you'll notice, go together. There's a drastic shift in verse 8. 8 through 10 go together. It's so much of a drastic shift that it feels unnatural. And people, as they've studied this, commentators have wondered out loud whether they go together or not. Because they seem so fragmented. But I think they do. And I think there's a reason why they're so fragmented. And hopefully through the sermon we'll, we'll gra- gather those things or catch those things. So, look at Psalm 6. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, according, <clears throat> according to the shimoneth which is a musical term. It also means to the eighth. And there's a lot of pondering about what that means. I think it's mysterious. I don't think we're meant to know exactly what it meant. A Psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are trembling. Trouble. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast covenant, abiding love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. Or we might say, for in the grave, under the dirt... All mouths are closed. In Sheol, who will give you praise? In hell, there will be no praise. I'm weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows, it grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You feel the shift? It's just like that on a dime, wasn't it? It's pretty amazing. Depression is a complex condition. In our world today, it's obvious that the number of people suffering under the weight of depression is growing. And we could make a lot of statements of why that is. I think there's a lot of causes for depression. There are many causes, and and I'm not one who ascribes that depression itself is always a sin, nor do I believe that depression is always tied directly to an individual sin. There, there are depressions which are, have nothing to do with you having sinned and so God's punishing you. But I will say this, depression, hear this closely, the distinction, depression, depression, all depression is a result of fallenness and sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, that is to say, there will be no depression. We will be relieved. From depression. It will be banished from our kingdom. There will be no one who has to be relieved from depression. 
in the new heavens and the new earth. Now I just want to tell you, if you have suffered under depression, that's a reason to love the new heavens and the new earth. For any amount of time, if you've suffered under the weight of depression, and I tell you, and I believe I can biblically prove it, Revelation teaches us that all things like depression are banished by the word of God from the new heavens and the new earth. If you're suffering under depression, that alone is reason for you to reflect over the need of Christ. Because there's no ultimate relief from depression outside of Him. No ultimate relief. You can get momentary relief, and we should fight and argue for momentary reliefs. But they're only momentary. Great Christians have suffered. Sometimes we look at depression and we think, that person must be away from the Lord. But I just want to bring some men's names up that suffered, we know from their journals, from their writings, deeply from depression. Luther. Calvin. One of Calvin's favorite statements was to say in Latin, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Knox, John Knox, the great Scottish reformer. I know he's bold in the face of a queen, but he trembled on his bed at night. Often. Spurgeon. Many say he died from a broken heart. Suffering under depression. William Cooper. The great hymn writer. Out of his depression came over 800 hymns. The only hymns that he and his pastor wrote together. He would spend hours locked away. He would spend months never coming out of his home. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the greatest preacher of the 20th century, suffered so severely under depression that he wrote an entire book about it. It's one of the greatest books ever on the spiritual work of depression. Many other stalwarts of the faith have lived through depression. And so if you're living through depression, I want to tell you, you're not alone. Many of God's people have suffered under depression. If you're under depression and suffering with it today, I want to tell you there is relief in Christ. Our psalmist here, David, is suffering under the weight of depression. He's suffering under the weight of being separated or feeling separated from God. He's going through a condition that I call and many have called the dark night of the soul. Spurgeon called it the time of desert waiting. When the streams of God's living water will not penetrate the depths of my hurting heart and I feel like the heavens are as a brass and God doesn't hear me when I pray. And He's not near to me when I'm struggling. It feels, in my perception, it feels like God doesn't love me. And He's forsaken me. Cooper said, I believe wholeheartedly in the elect of God and they are elect by God's sovereignty and I am not one of them. If that's not depression, I don't know what it is. So they suffered under this depression so many. David suffered under it and Luther and Calvin and so many others suffered and you may be suffering under it this morning. Having said this, that it's not directly linked to sin in your life, but it is the result of overall fallenness, I do want to not run past the fact that some are suffering. Some of you may very well be suffering under depression because you are sinning. 
You've made life choices that have put you in a position where your world has fallen apart. And now you're suffering with the world falling apart and it's driven you into depression. So don't run past that. I think it's unwise to run past that. Passages like James chapter 5 where the man is laying and dying. He calls for the elders. He doesn't say, well, it can't be because I've sinned. He says, it very well may be because I've sinned. So he repents and draws near to God. Because humbleness and drawing near to God, then God draws near to us. You see James 4 being acted out in the man's life. David's doing that, I believe, here. He senses that there may be God's purposes of working on him because of his past sin. And that's why he's cast out of Jerusalem. That's why he's on the run. That's why he's living in the desert. That's why he's struggling to know that God loves him. And he doesn't run past the fact that I need mercy. I am a sinner. And so, if you're in depression this morning... I don't want you to run past the fact that you may feel disconnected from God because you have unconfessed sin. Because your soul is suffering under a disconnection from the communion of God which your soul feeds on to have life. We wrongly think that our life, our soul, our eternal life in our soul is just self-sustaining. It's not. You only feel the life of your soul through the person and work of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. So your soul can be alive. If you get disconnected from God, you can feel dead. You are not self-sustaining. I am not self-sustaining. You can't live off the past. You have to receive new mercies every morning to be able to live in reality of today. And that's what David's struggling with in our psalm. I'm just laying the groundwork for you that you grasp the mentality that goes behind this text. Here's a man who sat on the throne of Israel. One of the greatest kings. Some would argue the greatest. Some would say Solomon. I think it's six, one, half a dozen, another. They were both great men of God. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man whose God saw him and judged him worthy to be called the king of Israel. Samuel went to see his brothers, remember, and looked at all his brothers and judged them worthy and looked at David and said he's unworthy. God looked at all the brothers and said they are unworthy and he looked at David because he looks at the heart, not the outward appearance and said he's my king. So this man David struggled with spiritual darkness, spiritual depression. This is the first night, dark night that he will suffer, but it's not the last. There are seven, what are called seven penitential psalms, repentance psalms. Here they are. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, the famous one, Psalm 51. Psalm 102, Psalm 130, Psalm 143. All of them are psalms of repentance. That should point to us the fact that it's a common feeling. This need for repentance. This need to be reconnected with God. Not just in David's life, but in our life. Some have not classed this psalm with the others because there's no mention of a specific sin here. But I have to side with the church fathers and with the majority of commentators who say, that this obviously is a man struggling under repentance, need for repentance in his soul. It's not just a physical sickness, in other words. Some people would say, well, he was just sick, and so he's physically tormented. But that doesn't seem to be enough. 
And we'll talk about that a little bit. But let's look at this passage together. Let's answer two questions. They're the two questions that came to my mind as I studied. I hope they resonate with you. First of all, when, when you're feeling this, the way David does, separated from God, struggling under the dark night of the soul, depression, you have to ask the question, why am I in this dark night of the soul? Why am I in this condition? That seems logical, doesn't it? I mean, it does to me. But when you're struggling, it won't be the question you ask. People don't go to Rod already asking this question. They come destroyed, distraught. Their lives are unraveling before their eyes, and there's not the peace of mind to stop and say, why is this happening to me? But that's the very first thing we should ask. Why am I struggling the way I am? Why is my soul so separated from the kindness of God? What is it that I'm doing or feeling or what's happening? So here's some answers I came from the text. First of all, I'm in this dark night of the soul because I know that God's anger is against my sin. Verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. You may very well be in a depressive state because you know of your condition in your natural self. You're a sinner. And you read the Bible enough and you're around godly people enough to know God hates sin. And so you have been driven to despair because in your heart you feel like God hates sin, I'm a sinner, He hates me. You have, in a sense, lost touch with the fact that you are a son of God now in Christ. You've begun to dwell only on your own fallenness and not look towards Christ. That's why we have been chided by past writers who would say to us, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. Take ten looks at Christ. Why? Because if you look only into yourself, you will only see what? What? Sin, darkness, fallenness, helplessness, hopelessness. If you never look outward to Christ, the source of all good, the source of life, the source of my life, the source of my forgiveness, the source of my acceptance, the source of my righteousness, the source of my adoption into the family of God, then I forget it and I just think I'm despairing. So you may... Be in this condition because you've spent too much time focused on your inner self rather than focused on the outward Christ. So the first thing, why am I in this? I had to ask or I had to answer. It could be because I have come to grips with the fact that God is angry against sin. Now let's don't make a mistake in this first part of the verse with anger. Sometimes we can think, read this verse and apply human fail, failing to it, Right? God's angry. What do we think? We think about our anger. And we think, God's anger is like my anger. What do I do in my anger? Which drives us into depression. What do we do? Doors get slammed. Curse words get said. Don't act like you don't cuss. Everybody in here curses. There are no exceptions. Preacher too. Some of us are just far enough along or maybe backwards enough that we cuss in our head not out loud. Right? We get mad. We lose our patience. We start using words that are hurtful. We'll clean it up. Maybe you don't cuss. 
But you just say snide and cutting remarks to the person you're angry at that cuts them down to size. You slam doors. Some of you worse. When you get angry, you get physical. Some of you have laid your hands on your children out of anger. Some of you have lifted a hand against your spouse in anger. And you read this verse and you think, that's what God does. The Bible says, oh Lord, he writes, oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. David's not saying he doesn't deserve God's anger. He's saying, just don't discipline me out of passion. Don't be controlled by passion. See, God is angry. But his anger is not like ours. He's not controlled by it. His action and his demeanor and his character control his passion. He's impassable. That's what we mean by that term. He's not driven to fits of rage. He's not capricious. He doesn't get fed up and fed up and fed up and then he says, that's enough spanking time. He doesn't do that. He's measured. He's perfect. He's unfailing in His wrath. His wrath is kindled against us as sinners if we're outside of Christ. If you're outside of Christ today, I do want you to remember what I said last week. God is wrathful and He does hate you because you are in your sin. That's a godly statement. And if you persist in it, He will crush you under the weight of His wrath in eternity. If you don't come to Christ, that will be your condition. He will always have wrath against you. But God is so good in Himself, in His character. He is so complete. He is so perfect that He can be both angry and loving at the same time. So what David's actually saying is, don't simply punish me, God. I know I deserve it, but please don't do it. He's in touch with the fact that God is angry at sin, and He knows He's a sinner. Nor discipline me in your wrath. Wrath is not what we would call an an essential characteristic of God. It's not essential. What does that mean? It's not necessary. For God, God would be God without wrath. Unlike love, love is essential to God's character. Without love, there is no God, as we know Him, the triune God. You see the difference? But why does wrath happen? Why is God angry? Because of sin. God has not been eternally wrathful in and of His own character, but rather He has been angry because His love has been rejected. And it started with Adam and it has never ceased. Right? So you come to grips with that and you realize, I'm a sinner. I deserve God's wrath. And that may drive you from God if you're not careful. If you never, like David, say to God, honestly, God, don't, please, Lord, don't discipline me in your wrath. God disciplines all those that He loves. But He disciplines them not as a judge. What we see behind this is David saying, don't treat me like a judge who throws the offender in jail, but rather treat me like a father who disciplines his son. Hebrews 12 should come to our minds. If you're a legitimate child of God, you will be disciplined. 
If you're illegitimate, you won't be disciplined. The example, what? Jacob and Esau. Jacob received much discipline in his life. Esau never received any. Why? Because he was an illegitimate son. He was hated by God. He was separated from the Lord. But when Jacob is wandering far from his father's home, driven from his his camp by his illegitimate brother, you don't think he felt what David feels right here? God, please don't discipline me out of judging me, but rather accept me as your son. Let the discipline fall on me like that from a father to his son. Secondly, we can answer the question, why am I in this dark night of the soul? By saying, I'm in this dark night because it's unclear how long God will discipline me. Verses 2 and 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Why are you languishing, David? Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Why are your bones troubled, David? My soul is greatly troubled. Why? Answer, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? One reason you may be struggling like David was struggling in this text is because you're uncertain of how long this will last. If you've ever suffered depression, it can feel minutes feel like hours. Hours feel like years. Years feel like millennia. They're never ending. And so you begin to think, oh no, this is how it will always be. I'll never taste God's goodness again. I'm going to always be the way I am. That thought, how long, O Lord, calls David, I believe, from my understanding of the Scripture, to begin to shake, quiver in his soul. He got weak. He became overwhelmed in a sense. He didn't see a way out. He, he thought, how long will this keep going? Now remember his physical condition? He's laid out in the wilderness. His son's on the throne in Jerusalem. He's got an army amassed to destroy his father. And he's saying, how long is this going to go on? I mean, he has the promise of God on his life. He is a child of the king. He knows that God loves him. But in the moment that he's facing in Psalm 6, it doesn't feel that way in the here and now. He knows it rationally, but he's not emotionally connected to it. And he's depressed. And what he wants to know from God is, how long will you let this go on? How long? See, the honesty in both of these beginning answers. The honesty to say I'm a sinner, and so God, please don't judge me, but rather father me and shepherd me and love me, and don't, Lord, let this continue beyond my ability to stand. Don't let this dark night continue, because if you do, I don't know what will happen. You see, the uncertainty in the language. He's languishing He's asking that he be healed. Why? Because he's troubled. He's trembling, I said in my reading. He's trembling. He's quaking. He's fearing in his self, in his soul, deep down to the very marrow of who he is. The life of who he is is trembling. How long will this go on? Third, you may be in the darkness of soul. Why am I in it? Because I'm not in communion with God. 
I'm not in communion with God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. The word turn is the same word of repentance. Repent, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. God, if you let me die, I can't praise you in this life. He's not saying he's not able to praise God in the afterlife, in the eternity. Yes, but he's saying, in the congregation of Israel, I won't be able to praise you anymore. You'll have one less proponent for your grace. If you let me die, God, my voice will not be audible anymore to your people here. So he says, if you let me die, there's no remembrance. In Sheol, in the grave, there's no one that gives praise in the physical life that we're living now. Why do I turn, uh, use communion here? Because of that first word, turn, O Lord. I do, not, I do not see a place in Scripture that God has turned away from Him. But He's expressing it the way He feels it. He's expressing it from His perception, from the human side of it. It feels that God has turned His back. But rather what has happened is David has turned. He senses that he has left communion. So what he's asking God to do is turn to him. Come to me. Repent. Let, let me repent. This, this is where we see the repentant song coming out. Let me repent and return to you my deliverer. Save my life. Express to me anew the steadfast love which we have in you. The covenant love. That word steadfast is the covenant love of God. So he senses here, why am I in darkness? It's possibly because I'm not in communion with God. So he's asking God be in communion with me. Finally, we can answer this question by saying from the text, I'm not able to rest because my sorrow is so great. Verses 6 and 7. I'm weary with moaning. Not grumbling, not murmuring, groaning and moaning. It's a sense of emotion that he's expressing hurt. A true, heartfelt, soul-level hurt. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night, I flood my bed. I cover my bed with tears. I drench my bed with weeping. I've cried so much that my eye is wasted away in grief. I can't even hardly see because of all my foes. If you look here, he's expressing what many of the depressed among us feel. He's saying, I could be going into further depression because of my depression, which keeps me from being able to sleep at night. You ever been there? You go all day, you're busy, you're with others, you think you're feeling better. Then the lights go out and everybody else in the house goes to sleep and you're laying wide awake. On your bed. Eyes pried open. You could hardly get strength to make it through the day. You drank eight cups of coffee just to survive at work. But then you come home to sleep. And when you lay down, eyes pop open. Can't sleep. Soul is uneasy. Tears begin to flow. So much so that you get up because you don't want to wake your partner from their sleep. And you just go into the other room and you just weep all night. Next morning, everybody else is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And your eyes are weak from weeping. Why? Because of my foe. 
Now, his foe was a physical foe and a spiritual foe, and your foe just may be spiritual. But either is great enough, right? To overcome our weakness. To show us that we can't stand. Tiredness makes a coward of us all. The tireder you physically get, the more it plays into your spiritual depression. Your soul depression. So I sense here that what he's saying is, I'm worn out, God. What we get in these first seven verses is a man, David, who has run to the end of himself and he's asking God to be in communion with him. Turn back to me, God. I can't take it anymore. Stop disciplining me. Out of, please don't discipline me out of anger. Don't pour out your wrath on me in judgment. Oh God, I, I'm struggling under the weight of the fact that I don't know how long you're going to let this continue. I need to know when it ends. And that's breaking my fellowship with you. And so much so that I can't even rest. There's no rest. In Psalm in the, in the later psalm of repentance, you will see he often says his soul is being tormented. Why am I in this dark condition? Second question I see in the text is how will I be delivered? How will I be delivered from the dark night of the soul? How am I going to get out of this? Isn't that what we all want to know? When we're there, that's what we want to know, right? Well, first answer. Notice in the first verses there, in the first four verses, do you notice the word Lord? And do you notice that it's all caps? And what does that mean? We've talked about it before. It means it's translating not Adonai, but Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. How will I get out of the dark night of the soul? The covenant God will deliver me. He cries out to God. Notice what he says. Oh, Yahweh. Second verse. Oh, Yahweh. Second part of the second verse. Oh, Yahweh. Third verse. Oh, Yahweh. Fourth verse. Oh, Yahweh. He just keeps crying out to God. As His covenant God. Not as some distant God that's unconcerned with Him, but the covenant Love of God is really what he's drawing on. I have a relationship with you. I'm in you. I'm struggling. Help me. That's what the first four verses do. They cry out to God to deliver. The fact is, you won't get out of the dark night of the soul until the Lord delivers you from that night. You can't deliver yourself. The spiritual darkness I'm speaking of cannot be lifted unless God lifts it. If He will not lift it, it will not be lifted. It can be, it can be appeased. It can be lessened. You can, you can do a lot of man-made manipulations to make it seem to be gone. But the only one who lifts the kind of depression that David's suffering, or you may be suffering under, is God Himself. Secondly, the Lord will turn away His enemies. You notice in verse Eight, that shift that happened. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. You notice he is confident that God will deliver him from his enemies. 
God will put his enemies to shame. God has heard his prayer. You notice his confidence being in the Lord here. The Lord has heard my prayer. He has heard my plea. He is driving away my enemies. The confidence that David feels here that feels so unnatural to us is simply a response from a heart that has repented and drawn near to God and trusts that God will do what He has promised to do. The reason I think it's so hard for us to understand is because unlike David, we don't trust God very much. Rather, we kind of think, well, God, I'm just a peon. God doesn't care about me. I'm, no, I'm a nothing. God doesn't have a plan for me. I mean, yeah, God loves that person. He, he loves Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was great, one of the greatest preachers of all time, but he doesn't love me. We don't have the confidence that David had in the covenant God. What we see happen through the first seven verses, and it's going to happen in all of these repentance songs, is David sings out of his heart of brokenness, which brings him to the love that God has for him, which gives him confidence that God will deliver him. I think it's spoken before, in this case, before God delivers him. Why do I say that? Because notice he says, The Lord, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies, what? Shall be, there's a future sense here, shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They haven't been ashamed and greatly troubled, but they will be. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. They haven't yet been done that way, but they will. He has confidence in God. How will I get out of this darkness? The Lord will deliver me. And in time, through brokenness in front of Him, humbling myself and drawing near to Him, I will come into true trust that God is for me. Who can be against me? I think in the New Testament we have this parallel uh, to the life of David, in a sense, in the life of Paul. Paul has a continual battle. I mean, it seems as if, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, you come to grips with the fact that most of Paul's life as an apostle was spent on the run, in danger, in suffering, in prison, in famine, in nakedness, in perils of my countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, being stoned, being beaten with rods, being cast out of the city, being... I mean, he's constantly under attack. But from that, we get the confidence that he has in who God is. In close, I want you to look at Romans 8. I think Romans 8 parallels David's Psalm 6, 8 through 10. As we look at Psalm 8, we see this same thing. Now, to set up Romans... I mean, as soon as we look at Romans 8, we'll see this. Romans 7, we had to have Romans 7 in our minds. Why? Because Romans 7, you know, is the famous verses 14 uh, through the end of the chapter there. He's struggling with the fact that he can't do what he wants to do. I want to obey, but I can't obey. I, I, I keep finding myself always sinning, going back and and it drives me. Look at verse 21. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, verse chapter 7, verse 21, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
In my soul I delight in God's law, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 8, Oh, verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His confidence was in the Lord. Just like David's. And his confidence wasn't in some general God person, but rather in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what I'm calling you to today, you're in depression. Maybe you're in it tomorrow. Maybe it hits you next year. Maybe you're a decade away from it. But when it hits, know that you have the Lord. On your side. And He will deliver you. Know that in His deliverance, you will find communion and peace with Him. And He will drive away all of your enemies. He's done this in Christ. Now later in that passage, verse 18, I want you to look at what, uh, what, what Paul writes here. I think this is so helpful during our times of down, discouraging, depression, dark night of the soul. What does, it, what does Paul focus on in these moments? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. You see that? In hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation, we might say, is depressed because of sin. It's repressed because of sin. It's enslaved because of sin. And like David moaned in verse uh, in the verses in chapter 6 of the psalm, so Paul says creation is groaning and we are groaning. In hope of the fact that God will deliver us. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes of what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What God is doing in your depression is often building perseverance. When perseverance has its perfect work, it begets hope. The hope of deliverance. The hope of reunion. The hope of rejuvenation. The hope of everything being right again. What drove Paul in the moments of weakness and failure and sin. And what drove him when he was being attacked? His hope. His hope. Not in himself. Not in his fellow man. But in Christ. Who had delivered him. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Your depression works together for good. All things work together for good to those who love, who are called according to His purpose. Those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Everything works together for good. Even the dark night of the soul. 
For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. In the midst of your depression, you come to a hope in the work of God. In predestining, in calling, in justifying, in glorifying. So that's what drives his confidence that nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What am I saying? In these moments, in these seasons, in these years of depression, the only thing that will rescue you and your soul is the work of Christ. That's it. The only ultimate rescue comes from him. How do I connect to Him, Carlton? I don't feel close to Him. Psalm 6. We honestly cry out to Him. Deliver me. We believe. Deliver me. Oh God, don't discipline me out of Your anger. Don't give up on me and treat me like a judge. Don't condemn me. I'm in Christ. Treat me as Your child. I don't know how long this is going to last. But however long it is, your love is steadfast. It never fails. So, because of that, my enemies are driven away. The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord has identified with my prayers. The Lord has answered me. The confidence and the trust is placed in the one who will not fail you. So if you're without God, you're without Christ in this world, sadly I will say there's no ultimate hope for you to be relieved from your depression. There are ways you can be helped in this life and this life only, but ultimately you can't be helped outside of Christ. If you're in Christ, you ultimately have help. You may still need to seek help in this this life, help, counsel, people to hold you accountable, people to preach the word to you, people to help you professionally. That may be a need, but ultimately you have deliverance. I quoted to you William Cooper earlier. He died in depression. His whole adult life. He was never in this life delivered. I can't help but think of what it might have been like for him when he crossed death's shore. I mean, I just think about it. 30 years of an adult life eaten up with depression. Pain, suffering, separation, no communion, not with his fellow man, not with God, feeling like he wasn't one of God's elect, all of those emotions. And then for him to wade out with Christ into the water of death and then to walk up on the celestial shore. And all of that's gone. The hope. So, hear me. If you suffer your whole adult life in depression, how is that to be counted in comparison to the hope of glory? That's what drove David in his times of the dark night. And that is what is available to us, is the hope 
of the resurrection, the hope of the eternal life. 30 years versus eons upon eons of freedom. Trust Him. Cling to Him. Call out in honesty. Beg for communion. But never lose hope. Let's pray. Father.